We are in Genesis chapter 11, and, uh, and we're looking at verses 10 uh, through verse 32 today. And I wanted to <clears throat> wrap up our summer series uh, in Genesis 11 with just a brief overview of some things that we've called. We've called this series Foundations, and um, with the way in which people have responded to the sermon series this summer, uh, it's my hope and goal that next year we will pick up where we left off um, this year and the next summer and pick up in Genesis 12 and try to work our way up until Joseph uh, around chapter 28 or 29, somewhere in there by next summer. And, uh, and so moving on from foundations to the patriarch, the period of the patriarchs will be our goal for next summer. But I think we've been uh, encouraged by Genesis 1 through 11 as it becomes for us a foundation. What a foundation is to your house um, what the periodic table of elements is to chemistry, and what the Constitution is to the United States and to the law, we see that Genesis 1 through 11 is a foundation for our faith. And you have a solid foundation if you understand these chapters and uh, understand what they're telling you. I grew up in Oklahoma, <clears throat> which accounts for um, my weird accent at times. And uh, I, I know that uh, in Oklahoma, <clears throat> nobody has basements because it's all built on this clay soil that uh, shifts and changes. And so everybody at some point or another has to get these large steel piers put into their house that adjust and keep the foundation level and steady. A friend of ours, uh, a guy named James Langford, <clears throat> I remember when he built a brand new house and it was built on not quite compressed or compacted soil that they just put a lot of brush and uh, a lot of dirt and brush and really did a kind of a shoddy job preparing the land that within six to eight months of him moving into this brand new large house, uh, walls began to crack, things began to shift. They eventually had to move out. I don't know if it was condemned or not, but, but everything because the foundation was faulty. And so for us, the, the application might be that if, if our lives begin to show cracks or dents or if there are issues within our own life, it could be that we have a faulty foundation. So consider some of the things that we've learned in Genesis 1-11. through 11. Uh, We've learned that God is our Creator, that He spoke all things into existence from nothing. We learn some philosophical truths that creation has a time, um, uh, a creator, an originator, one who designed the universe. Uh, We learn the force of energy is God's spoken word and the power contained within him. We learn that God, when he said, let us create man in our image, is a, a triune God as the spirit hovered above the water and From John 1, we know that the Word became flesh, and so the spoken Word of God in the person of Jesus Christ and God the Father are three distinct personalities in a single God. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God in three persons. If you can unravel that, then you have a lot to teach me. Um, We learn that God is personal. He relates to the people that He created. He doesn't just... Um, set the earth or the universe in motion and then is off in some other world doing something else. But he oftentimes condescends and walks among people. He's personal. He wants to have a meaningful relationship with you. God is not distant. 
as you might perceive him to be, but he's close and he wants you to talk to him and to have a meaningful relationship. We learn that God is righteous and holy, that he is a God with standards and order and rules and laws that are just and are meant for human thriving and that they reflect his righteous image in the world. We also know that God is a just God who punishes sin, does not put up with evil forever. We saw that clearly in the flood. Have you ever watched one of those Friday night crime shows and by the end of it, you just knew who the guilty person was, right? And uh, maybe you can pick it out. Julie's really good at that. She can find the one who's guilty. And, um, and sometimes they kind of trick you and you don't know who's guilty or if they're guilty or not. But in some of those cases, you just know who the guilty person is. And when the jury goes out to give a verdict, you just hope that justice is served. That's a, 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 a semblance of this just God who is punishing sin and wickedness and evil. He does not allow sin to go unpunished. And we need that and we appreciate that in our society. Much more we see that in God. We don't just learn about God in the first 11 chapters of Scripture. We learn about people, that we are created in the image of God, that among among every species um, in the earth or in the universe, that there is this one unique um, creation, which are people who are made to image God in His likeness, male and female. We also learn about people uh, that once Adam and Eve uh, broke the rule of God by eating from the tree. It wasn't an apple tree, by the way, but by eating the fruit of the tree that God forbid them not to eat from, that this introduced sin and death and disease and cursing into the world. Right? We understand that. And so every child born to Adam and Eve was born with this condition, this predisposed condition of sinfulness. That's why you you don't have to teach a two-year-old how to throw a fit and how to disobey their parents and how to, you know, you don't have to teach a five-year-old how to take toys from other kids, right? They, they just naturally know how to do that. We naturally break God's law because we are born as a sinner. Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not one of you who is more righteous, born that way, born holy, born right with God. We are all born sinners. We learn these things in Genesis 1 through 11. And even though Genesis 1 through 11 doesn't tell us everything that we want to know, right? We had questions about who the sons of God are and what these Nephilim and Anakim and Rephaim and these giants. And we, we don't know everything. We don't know about the antediluvian world and the, the water canopy and the, the conditions in the atmosphere that allowed people to live to 800, 900 years. All that stuff is still a question for us, but we learn a lot. We learn what we need to learn in Genesis 1 through 11. And it brings us to really the last word of, of chapter 11, which, which brings us to uh, the introduction of one man that we're going to focus on today, and that's Abram. We're grateful that we don't have just Genesis 1 through 11. It doesn't tell us everything we need to know, but it tells us enough that we can have a solid foundation for life. The full revelation, the 66 books of the Bible, uh, I want to encourage you, don't stop at Genesis, but read and study and meditate on all of Scripture as it it, uh, sheds light on all of God's redemptive activity in the world and the end purposes of God. 
But we don't want to neglect the foundation either. And so that's what our time together this summer has looked like. So here we get to Genesis eleven ten through 32. And I know you're excited. It's another genealogy, right? So if you're hunting for baby names, uh, you can always look in, in Scripture to find some interesting names. Uh, not like chapter 10, where there were 70 names. Um, this sort of ending section of Genesis 11, after the Tower of Babel incident, really completes the incomplete genealogy that was introduced in chapter 10. That incomplete genealogy was that of Shem. And so chapter 11 uh, really focuses not on Joktan. Remember, Joktan had these 12 sons or 11 sons or all those. Uh, But this focuses on the uh, Shem that leads to Abram. And just by way of reminder, genealogies are easy to skip and they're easy to kind of yawn through, Um, but genealogies do something important. Let me remind you of what they do. Genealogies ground the message of the Bible in reality. They allow us to trace a timeline of the world, generally speaking. They produce for us an account that grounds the gospel message in reality. You can point to someone's father and their father and their father and their father and you can trace it back just like Luke did, the historian in Luke chapter 3 where he gives the full genealogy of Jesus uh, going all the way back to Adam, right? Uh, In Matthew, uh, you have the genealogy of Jesus going back to Abraham. And so we see these genealogies do something in grounding the gospel message, not in myth, not in legend, but in a way that scribes and people and ancestors could say, that was my great, 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 great grandfather or whatever it was. But they also give us a timeline. Scripture is really careful to point out a timeline. I mean, right here in, um, in, in, in chapter uh, 10 and 11, that we, we noted that, that Shem um, began his family two years after the flood. Well, that gives us a timeline. We know based on the young earth timeline presented in Scripture, as many have tried to recreate it, that about 4,000 B.C. was the time of creation. In 2300 B.C., the flood came in Noah. So there was about 1,600 years of humanity before... I'm sorry, 700... Yeah, 1,600 years of... Humanity before the flood and before things spun out of control. After the flood, 2200 B.C., the Tower of Babel. Uh, 1950 B.C. was Abraham's birth. Uh, Then you get Isaac and Jacob and Moses in 1500. The conquest of Canaan around 1400 B.C. In 1000 B.C., David becomes the king over the United Kingdom. In 930, Israel divides into two kingdoms and on and on it goes. So these genealogies root us in a timeline and that timeline gives us a sense of God's timing in the world. Do you want to know? When Scripture tells us that God is patient and that He accomplishes His purposes in time, a 6,000-year world gives us some sort of a perspective on God's creative timeline. But it also tells us that when Jesus came 2,000 years ago and said the end is near, that the end times are coming, and He began to give warning signs, that this is the most obvious statement Probably dumb to say, but every day we get nearer to the end times, right? But, but we are in the end times. We can say that based on the signs that Jesus himself gave us. So these things come from genealogy. So we don't skip over them. Uh, more careful theologians and more careful researchers and historians, they dig into these things because they help reveal not just the past, but the future. 
So as we look at chapter 11 and as we, we kind of um, wrap up our summer series, we zoomed way out in chapter 10 and the beginning parts of chapter 11 to see that the earth was being repopulated and filled again and that the Tower of Babel happened where everybody was dispersed. And so it zoomed way out, but now we're zooming way back in. Our focus is going not just from the entire world, but now we're going to focus in at the end of chapter 11 onto one man, one purpose. The one man from whom and from where the Messiah would come. So let's pick up in verse 10 of chapter 11. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. That's the detail that we find there. So, had a baby... Became a father at a hundred years old. This shows us the the lifespan of people uh, before and shortly after the flood. Verse eleven. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad five hundred years and had other sons and daughters. Now, one minor note that I'll point out about this genealogy uh, is that <clears throat> other genealogies spoke of their life and that it included their death and he died and he was buried with his fathers but but probably one of the most repetitious words in this passage is and he lived and he lived and he lived and he lived without any indication of death just a note it may or may not mean anything important to us but it's important to note out that the pre-flood genealogies and the pre-babel genealogies all talked about their life and also their death which gives an attention to death. Not that death wasn't a reality after the flood, but it's just a subtle observation that now, after the united rebellion at Babel was quelled and everyone was dispersed, now these people, the focus is that there is life ahead and not just death. Verse 12, when our Pakshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And so people are starting to become fathers and mothers at a much earlier age Shem was a hundred before he became a father. Verse 13, And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. Verse 14, uh, When Shelah, is how some people say it, it's, uh, it was a man's name back then, but when Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And as we've noted before, Eber is where we get the word or the designation Hebrews. It was from the name Eber. Verse 15, Sheila lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And the interesting thing about Peleg is that his name means division. And you'll remember from chapter 10 that when Peleg was mentioned, it said it was because at this time God divided the world. And so Peleg was born shortly after the Tower of Babel incident that took place when the languages were confused and everything changed and everyone was dispersed around the world. So we have a timeline for Peleg. Verse 20, when Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And after Ru lived, after he fathered Sarag, 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. So you can see in that genealogy that their lifespans are shortening. 
We talked in Genesis 4 and 5 that the conditions of the earth had some sort of an atmospheric water canopy that allowed for uh, what we described as a, an oxidization ch- uh, chamber, one of those oxid, I don't think I said that right, but one of those oxidation, what? Hyperbaric chamber, thank you so much, that's the word I couldn't find. One of those kind of hyperbaric chambers that create this oxygen-rich environment that um, gives us this uh, understanding of of their long, long lifespans. But after all of that is broken up, after the flood, the, the conditions of the atmosphere deteriorate in such a way that now... By the way, Abraham was born two years after Noah died. So you have these... They overlap each other in their lifespans in such a way that you could go to a 600-year-old and, and your physical body might resemble that person's physical body because of the effects of the environment and their lifespans shrinking. But it, so much so that Abraham, when he's 100 years old and his wife is 90 years old and she's about to become a mother, that is an old age when... At the same time that Abram was born, it would not have been an old age at all. It would have been a young man. Shem was, had a child, he was a father at a 100, and it was not an old age for him. So the life expectancy is drastically reducing from 600 years down to 205 years with Terah, Abram's father. Verse 26, uh, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. So these are familiar characters, right? We're starting to now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you're familiar with the Old Testament, Abram and Lot will show up again and again and again, as well as Sarai. Verse 28, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah. The, the literal Hebrew is that he, he died in the face of his father, indicating that he might have had a, a, a death that his father was, was present for. He died in the face of his father in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And where is Ur of the Chaldeans? If you're familiar with geography, it is lower Iran, current day, modern day Iran, uh, in what is known around the world as the Fertile Crescent, uh, that sort of outer band that bends from uh, the, if I'll do it backwards for you, but the uh, northern Mediterranean Turkey that bends all the way around through the Middle East and down into uh, Iran. Uh, and that uh, that whole area Uh, The lower southern part was Mesopotamia, where Ur of the Chaldeans was located. That's where Abram is from. Verse 29, Abram and Nahor took wives. The wives, uh, the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Sarai means my princess. And... um, her name was later changed. And by the way, you, I'm saying Abram now, but I may mix, mix it up and say Abraham. His name isn't changed to Abraham until, I think, chapter 17. Abram means exalted father, and his wife's name, Sarai, meant uh, my princess. And God will change their names to Abraham, which means the father of many nations, and Sarah, instead of Sarai, meaning princess. So he just drops the my uh, meaning that she is the princess, not just my princess, as noted here. But we also get to know Nahor's wife, and this is going to be a hint or a clue as to the heritage 
of Terah's family, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. The name of Nahor's wife is Milcah. Milcah means queen, uh, and it's an Akkadian title for the goddess Ishtar. Have you ever heard of the goddess Ishtar? Ishtar was the goddess of Venus, or the queen of heaven. So they're naming their daughters after these Babylonian, Mesopotamian goddesses. This is a thoroughly pagan world that we're talking about. And there's an interesting corollary to this. Uh, John MacArthur notes that um, he says uh, this corollary comes up later in Israel's history. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 18, he writes that the children gather wood and the fathers kindle the fire and the women knead the dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out their libations to other gods in order to spite me. My people in my city of Jerusalem are worshiping the Queen of Heaven. This will come back to haunt them later. And that's what this name means, Milcah. Milcah was this word, Malkath HaShamayim, which means the Queen of Heaven. That's who she was named after, this Goddess of Heaven. It's mentioned in other places. So that gives us an indication of who and what their family background was like. But something changes in chapter 11 of Genesis, verse 31. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. And I don't know why they did that, but Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, verse 2. Do you remember Stephen? Fast forward a couple thousand years from now. Stephen, uh, the deacon from Acts chapter 6, is now um, on trial in front of the Jewish council. And, and while he's there, he's going to give his defense that what he's preaching about Jesus uh, was not wrong, and he's demonstrating that he has an accurate view of their history. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, in Stephen's speech, he says, When our father Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldeans, God spoke to him. So you see there that before he ever moved to Haran, and settled there, as, as we learn that Terah will do here, God was already active and working in the life of Abram, calling him out at that point. Even though we won't read about it until chapter 12, maybe next summer, when we, when we begin to cover that. But let's finish the verse here, and we're going we're gonna to have some things to say about, about his heritage. Verse 32, I'm sorry, verse 31, When they came to Haran, they settled there, and the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. There are two things I really want to bring out uh, from these uh, verses that we just read. Number one, I want us to understand who is Abram, and I, and I also want us to understand his background. Who is Abram? Uh, what's Abram's future like? Well, if you're new to the Bible, Abraham, originally Abram, is the common Hebrew patriarch of three world religions. Can you name the three world religions that trace their origins back to Abraham? Yeah, Christianity. All right, good. What's the second one? Judaism. That's right, Judaism. And the third one? 
Islam. That's exactly right. You're all very smart. Um, Abraham is directly linked to the religious adherence to Christianity, Judaism, and and Islam. And if you're talking about this, uh, we're talking about 17 million worldwide adherents to Islam. I mean, I'm sorry, to Judaism today. To Christianity, there are reported 2.4 billion adherents. And to Islam, there are 1.8 billion adherents. That means that According to these numbers, uh, over half the population of the world have direct religious influence from this one man, Abraham. He's a very important guy and somebody that you should know, right? And we're introduced to him as this lowly um, son of Terah here in chapter 11. Abraham, later in Scripture, is called the patriarch. Uh, He is... um, He is made, uh, God makes a promise to him in chapter 15 and 17 and other places. Let's just turn to chapter 15 really quick. A couple of pages over. In Genesis 15. uh, In Genesis 12, God calls Abram to leave and to go from his country. And then in chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 6, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me, since I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. A couple of chapters later in in Genesis 17, starting in verse 1, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly, still childless. Verse 3, Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. It goes on and on in several places, but the point you need to understand is that God is initiating covenant relationship with Abram. He's choosing him. He's calling him. He's speaking to him. And at the end of his life, Abraham still doesn't possess the land, but his offspring will. So let's secondly look at his background and from where he came. Because you would think, wow, if a guy gets chosen by God, he must be incredibly special. He must have an amazing heritage. And so let's look into his background. It says that uh, that his family is from Ur of the Chaldeans. I've already 
let you know that it is from Mesopotamia, modern day Iran, in southern parts there. But there's more to what was taking place in Ur of the Chaldeans. There's something that we need to know about that. Archaeologists and historians have noted that they worshipped moon god and that it was centered in Ur of the Chaldeans. Joshua chapter 24, 2 also tells us, you don't have to turn there, but Joshua 24, 2 uh, tells us, that Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. So Terah raised his family, not fearing God and understanding God, but Abram's family were idolatrous pagans. And they probably worshipped according to the gods of astrology invented or perfected near Babel. All around we see these pyramids and ziggurats that reflect a pagan religion. Uh, Paganism might be described as worshipping anything in the natural creation and attributing to it deity. And it was out of bounds for people who followed God. So Abram's family, uh, from being from Earl, Ur of the Chaldeans, likely were involved in the moon, uh, the cult of the moon god, which flourished there. <clears throat> I'm skipping notes that are not important. Sorry. <laughs> um. Terah's name, related by Hebrew scholars, uh, is the word Yaria, which is the same God uh, as this moon God as well. And so Ur becomes, as noted by archaeologists and historians, a major center of the worship of the moon God in ancient Mesopotamia. So, so Abram's family was from a pagan background. They worshipped and served and believed in this moon God. Also in Abram's background, we also had noted earlier that Sarah was barren. She couldn't have children. And yet the promise of God in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 is that there would be incredible offspring. And so being barren for a very long time, through her teens, into her 20s, through her 30s, her 40s, her 50s, 60s, 70s, these are long periods of time you can go to a lot of baby showers in that amount of time can't you you see a lot of people a lot of friends a lot of relatives having babies and having children and and this can be a very painful reminder especially in light of the promise that god would bless them and give them offspring it's a long time that god spoke to Abram and Sarah and said, you will be blessed with children before that promise was fulfilled. And yet we also know that they believed God and they followed Him and they maintained faith and they endured by faith through those difficulties. But somewhere along the way, on the way to Canaan, his father Terah decided to settle in Haran. And there's an interesting note about the location of Haran. As they would have made their way up through Mesopotamia, uh, not going straight across over the flat tableland and the 
the desert area, but going up and around and approaching from the north, they stop and settle in Haran. Archaeologists tell us that Haran was the second chief center of worship for the moon god. And by the way, the moon god's name was Sin, S-I-N. Terah got there, and it seems as though he felt a familiar sense of worship and said, this is home. We'll stop here. There's something about us that is repeatedly drawn to paganism or to worshiping other things, especially if we are not yet Christ followers. We, we resort to worshiping creation and the created order. We noted all along that in these first 11 chapters of Genesis that symbolically as people moved eastward, they moved away from the Lord. And here we have somebody who is eastward migrating westward as a result of God's call to them. But it's natural for those of us, all of us born into sin, to place our affection and our worship on gods that we make up on our own, idolatrous gods, gods of um, finance and wealth and comfort and ease, or maybe in some sort of paganistic way with uh, New Age spiritual ideas or even... Uh, worshiping according to astrological charts and things like that. We know that Egypt, there was the sun god, and uh, that it, all these worship and religious ideas that came up around the world place the object of their worship and faith as something other than God has revealed in the Bible. But the beautiful thing about this is that God draws people from that darkness into light. Abram's calling was not from some godly heritage, right? But it was from paganism to promise. And I want to conclude with this idea, and that is that God delights in saving sinners. God delights in bringing those in darkness into light. And for many people, you might say, well, I I wasn't in darkness. I I was raised very religious or I was raised very moral. And and so I I wasn't in darkness. Spiritually, we are all born into this sense of darkness. And God delights in redeeming sinners and bringing them from darkness into light. Why? Why did God choose Abram to be the father of nations? Why did He choose Him to be blessed in such a way that He is? That we're talking about Him even today. That we prayed for the nation that He began, that God began through Him at the beginning of His sermon. Was it His righteousness? Was Abram righteous? No. I mean, a couple of times He, just an example, He told His wife, hey, lie and tell everybody that you're my sister, putting her in this sort of vulnerable, exposed place where she was taken by other men so that Abram could be blessed financially. And it was only in Genesis 12 and 20 that God warned the men that had taken Abram's wife that he was complicit in giving, that God warned them. So I don't think you can point to and say that Abram was this righteous person on his own. But we do see in Genesis 15, 6, it wasn't his heritage, it wasn't his own righteousness, but, but where did Abram's righteousness come from? 
Well, more important than trying to figure out why God chose Abraham, it's important for us to fixate on the response of God, of Abraham, to God's promise. We read that in Genesis 15.6. After God promises Abraham these things, it says, He believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. When God called to Abram and made a promise to him, Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. See, salvation comes by grace through faith, right? People often ask, well, how were people in the Old Testament saved, right? Jesus hadn't come yet. He hadn't been born to the Virgin Mary, and he hadn't died on a cross yet. So how were people saved before? Were they saved by following the law? Well, the law wasn't even introduced by this time in Abraham's life. But Genesis 15, 6 gives us this hint of salvation by grace through faith. The right response to God's calling, to God's initiative in your life, is that of belief. Now, many of you have heard the gospel for years and, and, and years, and, and yet you've refused to believe in who Jesus is. Salvation is through faith, not by moral acts of goodness, not by being righteous, not by saying, well, my parents were Christians, and because of their faith, I'll slip in, or my grandparent was a pastor, or you know, served in the church, or my great-grandfather. My... We can't appeal to any of those things for salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. So we might ask, why would God choose you or I to save us? Is there something about you that makes you particularly attractive for God to save you? I want you to think carefully about that before you answer. Is there anything in you that merits salvation apart from Jesus Christ? How would you fill in that blank? God should save me because... Why? Because you have a heritage? Because you go to church? Sitting in a garage doesn't make you a car. Sitting in a church doesn't make you a Christ follower. Many people are surprised to learn that not everybody here is a follower of Jesus. Church is often filled with people who are not yet believers. People who are searching, people who are trying, people who are uh, in some sort of desperate search for a connection to who God is. And churches are filled with people who are not yet believers. It's not a helpful question maybe for us to ponder why God chooses to save us, other than it reveals our motives for salvation. A better question is this. How do you respond when God speaks to you? We find God all over Scripture, all over the Bible, initiating, seeking, pursuing sinners in whom He delights in saving. We call this the effectual calling. There's a general call where the gospel goes out to everybody, but there are some people who just, when when I'm talking like this, they hear something, some pull at their heart. There's something saying, pay attention, listen close, lean in. I can remember as a kid, 
uh, telling people I didn't believe that there was a God and I didn't believe in God. I lived in a fairly, uh, you know, wild, rebellious life. And, and yet I can still remember being invited to a revival in third grade from this super charismatic kid at this Pentecostal country church in Noble, Oklahoma. And, and I remember fixating on the speakers in the corner that hung on these big chains. And they said, PV. And I remember the way the P was written. It, it kind of fixated in my eyes. The only thing I remember is a third grader being in that meeting during this long time of preaching. But, but I also remember one thing, that at the end, when he gave an invitation, I felt like I had to go forward. I felt some... Something drawing me, some something in my spirit, even as a nine or ten year old boy, something saying, "Listen up, respond." Now, I didn't respond, but I remember it as clear as anything when Creator God began to speak to my own heart. And maybe that's you here today. Maybe this effectual calling that we describe is this—you don't know how to describe it, you don't know what it is—but but God is speaking to you. How should you respond? The better question is not to ask why God chooses to speak to you in this way. The better question is how do you respond? 1 Peter 2 says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That still small voice that Elijah described on the mountain, the the earthquake came, the fire came, the rocks were being busted, and yet it said the still there was a whisper that Elijah heard. That's that may be what you're hearing today, that this God is calling you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Ephesians two thirteen. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians two one, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now, but God, being rich in mercy, when you were dead in your trespasses, made you alive together in Christ. This is the beauty of who God is. He delights in redeeming people from darkness. The question is, do you consider yourself in darkness or not? Right? Do you consider yourself? Nah, Gibson, I'm, I'm not in darkness. I've been, I've been a church attender for 50 years or my parents are really religious or those are not the right answers god we thank you that you choose to and delight in saving and redeeming sinners we thank you that it is for your own glory that you have not called people who deserve it or who are good or who possess their own sense of righteousness but that you have delighted in calling people uh, simply for your own purposes, by your own glory and your own majesty, as a demonstration of your own grace. And we praise you for that. And we thank you that you have redeemed sinners, those who are broken and far from you. And we pray that this morning that you would continue in that way, and that you would draw near, and that if someone is hearing your voice today, that they might respond in faith, trusting in you, Lord Jesus. That's our prayer, and we ask it in your holy name. Amen.